Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we recognize that there's nothing in us that would make you love us. And yet you have given your Son so generously to us that you've poured out your mercy and grace upon us. Lord, we are not worthy to receive your grace, and yet we rejoice that we have today. Lord, as we come to your word, we recognize as well that you have the words of eternal life, and so we come to you. Who else would we go with but with you, Lord? So please speak to us now the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I don't know about you, but I really need gospel unity with you today. Because our world, our country, our city is so divided. We're so divided. Polarization has hit our streets, and I'm not just talking about the weather. And when I say that I need unity with you, I'm not just talking about plugging our ears, grabbing hands, and singing kumbaya together to achieve some superficial or shallow sense of peace. I need something deeper than that. I need something stronger than that. I need real peace and unity with you. Or else, I don't know if we'll make it. I will think too little of you and look down on you too easily. I will not speak kindly of you or to you. I'll be too offended by you, too angry. I will not want to be with you or be associated with you. I'll maybe even cut you out of my life. And that's why we need true peace. I need a deep unity. And I have a hunch that you need the same. Brothers and sisters, we have been given a high calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And the moments when people in our world, when most people would divide over their differences, are actually opportunities for us to live out our high calling. We can show the world a different way, a better way. And believe it or not, it is possible to do just that. It's hard, it's high, but it is doable and attainable because we who are saved have the spirit of the God who is able living inside of us. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. If you haven't already, Ephesians chapter 4, which I believe contains a very providentially timed message for us today. Ephesians 4. Chapter 4 here is 
clearly the turning point of the whole book of Ephesians. For the first three chapters, as we've seen, we've seen the glorious overview of the gospel from the Apostle Paul. How God's plans to save the world, how he has plans to save the world and center the universe around his son, Jesus Christ. And in this plan, God has taken people like us who were lost, wicked, condemned, and dead in sin, and has loved, chosen, adopted, reconciled, and saved us solely according to the vast riches of his grace and mercy through Jesus dying for us, rising to life, and uniting himself to us forever. The Apostle Paul has described all of this doctrine beautifully, this theology, and right after praying in chapter 3 that we would ever go deeper in grasping God's love for us. In chapter 4, Paul makes this transition from doctrine, you could say, to duty. Now, there's some overlap, of course, but in general, he shifts from theological instruction to practical application. And this is important to note here, because everything in chapters 4 to 6, the second half of the book, flows directly from the gospel. It flows out of it. If we were to study the rest of the book, divorced from the first three chapters, we could easily fall into a legalistic, moralistic, do-better version of our faith, and we would miss the whole point. When we're in Christ... Our lives change to be like Christ. When we're in Christ, our lives automatically, naturally change to be like Christ. We're saved by grace alone. While at the same time, as we've seen, we are saved for good works. The gospel's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And that's really crucial because we live and we work out of our acceptance and love, not to be accepted and loved. And this chapter 4 begins with this charge from Paul to those who are in Christ. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So therefore, ever so based on everything we've discussed so far, like we have a new identity now. What does that look like, practically speaking? We have a new family now. How should we act or behave within this family? And we have a new glorious destiny now. How should we live in light of it? These are the questions we're going to see answered over the rest of Ephesians. So I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here's how I would summarize the main point of this verse and really this passage for today, that those who are called to Christ are called to a new way of life. Okay, Those of us who are called to Christ are called to a new lifestyle, a new way of life. And Paul emphasizes this command by appealing to his imprisonment again. Did you see that? He said, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in this way. Why does that matter here? Well, this shows how much following Jesus was costing Paul. And if he could be a prisoner for the Lord, it diffuses, I think, some of our objections to this. Because living this new way of life for Christ is not usually easy. It can be super difficult to live humbly, gently, patiently, lovingly, peacefully. We may have to give up some of our rights and desires and preferences or more. You may think, listen, you don't know what I have to give up in order to make peace with that person. Or putting up with people like that is it's too hard on my mental health. <laughs> or I'm not willing to sacrifice my time or my comfort to make much of an effort here. Paul's there nodding, uh-huh, okay. You know you're talking to a prisoner right now. Someone in literal chains who's isolated, deprived, cold, abused, anxious. Our objections start to sound kind of silly in light of Paul's circumstances. If Paul could live out this new way of life from prison, if he could do this, so can we. It's like he was saying, you know, living for Christ is still worth it. It's worth the discomfort. It's worth the cost. And so he says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walking refers to our lifestyles. It can be translated, live a life or lead a life this way. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the Winter Olympics that just got started, we will see many athletes competing in a manner according to their sports and their level of skill. Think, for example, maybe of the speed skaters circling a track of ice. Now, if I were put on one of those tracks and told, skate in a manner worthy of an Olympian, <laughs> people might pay to watch me try, but it wouldn't be because of my skill. <laughs> But what would that mean for those Olympians, those professional skaters, to skate in a manner worthy of an Olympian? Well, it would mean skating with a high caliber of skill, using the proper form, staying in your lane, following the rules, being good, showing good sportsmanship. Now, if we are in Christ, we too have a high calling, not as Olympians, but as Christians. We are meant to walk, to live our lives in a manner worthy of that calling. Did you know that? That if you call Jesus your Lord, you have been called? You have a calling. No matter how young or old you are, mature or gifted you are, you have a calling. 
And we may, we may use that word to describe having a, a particular passion or urge towards something. Like, I have a, a calling to serve in healthcare or to be a mom or a missionary. But this is stronger than that. This calling is basically a summons or even an obligation. Like when Jesus calls you, you come. And we're given then a new life mission, a way to live. Whatever other callings we have in life, our main one, if we are in the Lord, comes from the Lord, to live in light of his love for us, which has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We can't take pride in this high calling. It's a gift. God called us long before we called on him. And so walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. You might think, think that sounds like an impossibly high calling. Like how could we ever be considered worthy of this calling? Won't we always fall short? And we weren't worthy when we received the call. Why would we be worthy now? And on the one hand, that's true. On this side of eternity, we will never be perfectly worthy. On the other hand, now that we've been given God's immeasurable riches of love and grace, and now that we've been indwelt by God's very own Holy Spirit in power, we actually can live lives that reflect, however imperfectly, God's calling for his people. We can do this now. So, what does this calling look like? How do we fulfill it? How do we live worthy of it? Now, if you were to guess here, maybe some ideas of, of things that maybe would describe our calling as Christians, you could have all kinds of guesses, right? Make disciples. Love the Lord with all you've got. Serve the needy, or so on. But Paul doesn't start with external physical actions. He starts on the inside. He wants us to consider our character, our attitudes, our motives, and our goals. Look with me. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, these things will all affect us on the outside, certainly. And every one of them plays into life in community, not as individuals. But our calling, first and foremost, is to be transformed in our hearts. I put it this way, that those who are called to Christ are called to a new way of life that reflects the character of Christ to one another. Right, our new way of life is to reflect the character of Christ to one another. I think that's possibly the best way to, to capture that handful of qualities or attitudes that Paul lists here. They're all, they all reflect the character of Jesus. And this is what he showed himself to be like. And now his people are called to show themselves to be his. So we're going to go through the list slowly, and as we go through, I encourage you to consider 
where you might need to, to grow or mature in your life. But if you feel convicted at all today, don't be shamed by that. Be encouraged that the Spirit is working in your heart, exposing things that need to change, but He is also empowering you to change by His grace and His power. So first, we are called to walk with all humility and gentleness. Those are a package deal. In the Greco-Roman world, humility, also known as lowliness, was not a virtue. It was despised, actually, as something servile, weak, shamefully low. Why would you ever aspire to that? And our, our culture today often tends to believe the same, doesn't it? Like, who should be admired today? The confident, the self-assured, the self-sufficient, the impressive not the low. But that's not the biblical picture of humility. The Bible repeatedly tells us that the Lord will bring down the proud and exalt the lowly. Humility is basically knowing who you are in light of who God is. Not thinking too highly of yourself or trusting in yourself, but instead admitting your need, your limitations, and trusting the Lord. And to be gentle, the second one here, is not to be weak. Don't buy into that lie. To be gentle is to control your strength and constrain it for the good of others. Notice the word all here, with all humility and gentleness. Or as another version puts it, be completely humble and gentle. These are not qualities we're meant to exhibit most of the time, while some situations in life might call for arrogance or brashness or self-confidence or violence. No, believers who follow the gentle and lowly Jesus should exude gentleness and lowliness. This might seem easy, might seem fine and dandy until someone shows up who seems better than you at something that you take pride in. And that envy or insecurity we feel stems from pride. Or it might seem easy until you're in a meeting, maybe a small group meeting or a business meeting or what have you, and, and your opinion seems to, you, seems to you to be the most important one that needs to be heard. Or when someone offers you a, a loving correction and you leap to your own defense. Or when someone is not gentle toward you with an offensive statement or insult and you're tempted to respond in kind. With all, walk this way, with all humility and gentleness, there are so many ways we fall into pride and ungentleness. So today, if you hear this and you are convicted, humble yourself 
Confess your sins. Receive Jesus' grace again. And the best way to grow in humility and gentleness is to see them demonstrated in Jesus. Praying that the Spirit would grow us more into his likeness. It says in Philippians, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, became a servant, he became a man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's look to him and follow him. That's our only hope, to live with all humility and gentleness. Next thing here is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling is to walk with patience. Patience. Which could be linked to bearing with one another in love. Patience makes allowance for other people's shortcomings. It long suffers or endures wrong. Patience resists flying into a rage, angrily storming off, or trying to get even. Now, what does this, that we're to walk with patience, what does this imply about the ongoing nature of the church? Here before Christ returns. Well, it means that our need for patience and forbearance means that there will always be things to bear with. And there will always be people who are not quite as far along as you in the faith. There will always be people who will test your patience for whatever reason. There will always be frustrating annoying, weird, different people around us. There will always be people with burdens that seem to keep overflowing onto you. There will always be people who need a little extra dose of love. Now this doesn't excuse sinful behavior. But a lot of what we're called to bear with isn't sinful. And even if it is, do you know how we are never once told to respond to sin? Impatiently? Harshly? And we're told to actually restore people in a spirit of gentleness. Or Paul says elsewhere, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. It's so vital that we, for us to be developing this now, in our days, which are fraught with conflict. I guess you could... We could thank God that he's giving us plenty of opportunities to work on this. <laughs> As we bear with one another's quirks and weaknesses and failures in the midst of tensions, that is walking in a manner worthy of our calling. So, you hear that, does this describe you? 
Where in your life does this call for repentance or fresh resolve? I hope that this becomes a defining characteristic of our community because it was a defining characteristic of our Savior who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and who is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what's the goal of all this? Humility for humility's sake? Patience for patience' sake? No. The main goal of these commands is actually to preserve the unity of God's people. These qualities crescendo there, if you will. Look at it again, verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul calls for an eagerness to maintain the unity we have in the Lord. In the original language, this is a term, the eagerness is a term that implies urgency, haste, or even a crisis. It's like he's kindly raising his voice with them. Maintain unity! We must! Other versions say to make every effort or to be diligent to preserve our unity. It's going to take work. It won't always be easy. We are called to be eager to find ways to stick together in Christ. After all, we've been bonded together. We have a bond of peace, it says. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Where did that bond of peace come from? Um, from the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's why it's called the, the unity of the Spirit here. It's created by God. But where did it come from? It also cost Jesus his life to secure it. Remember from chapter 2 where it said, For he himself, for Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." This is what it costs to make this bond of peace. So to live in a way that damages our unity is really an insult to the cross of Christ. At times we seem to not even care that this is something Jesus died to establish. It's precious. The blood-bought unity of the Spirit is a beautiful Wonderful gift from God. And like I said earlier, I need to have this with you. I yearn for it. I hope you do too. So ask yourself today, 
Am I really eager to stay united with my very diverse church family? Am I making every effort to maintain an observable oneness with others? Or are some of my actions actually jeopardizing or hurting our unity? Writing about our, our current global crisis at large, Randy Alcorn says that churches are experiencing a different kind of pandemic than what we hear about in the news. He says this, churches are experiencing a pandemic of tribalism, blame, and unforgiveness, all fatal to the love and unity Jesus spoke of. Rampant either-or thinking leaves no room for subtlety and nuance. Acknowledging occasional truth in other viewpoints is seen as compromise rather than fairness and charitability. I think he's right there. Now, I spoke at length about some practical implications of our oneness when we went through chapter 2 a while back. That was three months ago. And if you asked me then what would be the major issues I would need to talk about in February... I probably would have guessed the same things, right? I talked about broken relationships. Those are always necessary that we're reconciling with one another. Talked about racial reconciliation. Talked about masks and vaccines, all things related to COVID. I would never have guessed that I would need to talk about truckers and protests. But here we are. just goes to show that three months from now, it'll likely be something else new and exciting. <laughs> there will always be various threats to our unity. So we must remain vigilant on this. A lot of the stuff I said back then still totally applies today. No issues have really gone away. I still want to commend and applaud you as our church for our handling of disagreements overall. I really think that we have risen to the challenge here by God's grace. Here at Calvary, you will find people who are all over the map on just about every issue. And it really is okay to disagree on so many things, as long as those things do not supersede our unity around the gospel. Our unity in Christ is so much more important, so much more vital than any of these other things. So regarding this Freedom Convoy protest, you will know, you do know, and love people on polar opposite sides. I know you do. You're seeing it, you're feeling it. Some will be totally supportive of the protests and have legitimate desires for freedom. Others will be horrified and opposed to them, seeing only the dark sides of the movement. Many of you will likely be in the middle somewhere, cautiously in favor, warily against, not sure where you stand. Online, I'll tell you this, we tend to see only the extremes. Those who are either, see only a hero brigade, or only a band of Nazis. <laughs> no nuance there. Now, there may be people in this room 
who have deeply bothered or offended you in the last two weeks? I bet there are. Now, offending people is not usually a good thing. We should be seeking to avoid that. But here's the thing. If we can learn how to stay united around Christ, forgiving offenses, and preserving peace, that is a beautiful thing. And that can show the world Jesus. Like We have an opportunity, people. As Kent Hughes says, there are huge differences among us. But when the spiritual fruits of humility and patience reign, there is unity. Christian unity in profound diversity brings great glory to God. Now, I don't want to take sides on this. I don't want to shame anyone over their behavior over the last while. But we do need to be constantly evaluating if we are eager, eagerly maintaining this, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We have to be thinking through our actions, thinking, is this post that I'm about to make online going to be helpful and edifying or divisive? Is this perfectly legitimate stance I'm taking going to cause unnecessary offense with someone? Am I going to hurt a precious brother or sister in Christ with my words right now? Am I willing to sacrifice my own rights for the sake of Christ's reputation? Are we willing to be patient, polite, preferential, forgiving, forbearing, believing the best? By the way, all those are in 1 Corinthians 13. So in other words, are we willing to love others? the way that Christ loved us. In his article on the pandemic of disunity I quoted a moment ago, Randy Alcorn goes on to give a number of practical tips on how to pursue unity in fractured times, such as these. It says, to practice James 1.19, if we would only be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger, this alone would foster love and unity to an astonishing degree. Or when you disagree, if possible, meet face to face and talk. Don't shred each other publicly. Ask yourself where you are pointing. Will my words or social media posts be more or less likely to draw others to Jesus? Repent of being an agitator. Commit to being a peacemaker. Pray for those who've hurt you. Ask God to help you reject pride and develop true humility. Some great places to start there. In any appeal for unity, there's almost always an appeal to common ground. 
And we've already been doing that today, talking about our common salvation that we have in Christ. However, our unity is meant to reflect something even deeper than that, believe it or not. Even something more than our salvation. It's not just what God has done for us that unites us. It's who God is that unites us. Oneness is knit into the very fabric of reality with God. It permeates our faith. And that's the final thing I want us to see in this passage today, that those who are called to Christ are called to a new way of life that reflects the the character of Christ to one another and also that reflects the oneness of God to all. Our calling to a new way of life is to reflect the oneness of God to all, to everyone. Paul makes this point by giving us a sevenfold confession of unifying features of our faith. These are our supreme common grounds, mutual interests, and shared passions. Look at them. Our, the, our unity really is, you, is rooted in these unities. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So first, there is one body. That's speaking of the body of Christ, or the church. Even though there are churches in almost every city across the globe, even though there are numerous denominations of these churches, Some necessary for the sake of true unity, some unfortunately not. And even though Christians come in all shapes, sizes, stripes, and colors, behind it all, there really is only one holy, universal church of which every true believer of Christ is a cherished and vital part. This church spans centuries, and it even spans heaven, and earth, as there are countless believers already assembled before the throne of God. Our local churches are earthly manifestations of the heavenly body of Christ. There's one body and one spirit. Those are closely related. As 1 Corinthians 12 says, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. One thing to begin to see here though is that our unity is rooted in God's triunity. His trinity. Verse 4 talks about the Holy Spirit and our relationship to Him. Verse 5 talks about the Son and our relationship to Him. And verse 6 the Father. And just as God is perfectly united in himself, so we are called to be united under and in him. Verse 4 also mentions that we are called to one hope. There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call. When we're called, we're not only given new responsibilities, we're given a new hope. Which, by the way, the Spirit guarantees. 
And earlier in Ephesians it said, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you realize that you share a glorious future destiny with your brother or sister in Christ? Even the ones that annoy you. Even the ones that offend you. We have a, a common and a certain hope. And that changes things. Verse 5, there is one Lord. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, of course. It is he that we must confess as Lord in order to be saved it is he that all will confess is Lord one day, like it or not. And it is he that we must follow and obey as Lord above all others. Honoring Jesus as Lord is what unites us together in one faith. There's one Lord, one faith. Not one political party, by the way. Not one social club, not one nation, one faith. Now, this doesn't justify the idea that anything goes in our theology as long as Jesus is Lord. No, if Jesus is Lord, then we must make sure we unite around only what he says is true. What he says goes. He is Lord. We're never commanded in Scripture, to unite with those who have abandoned his lordship. But what we can rejoice in here, that there's one faith, is that everyone who is saved is saved through the same simple faith. By trusting that Jesus died in our place for our sins. Believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead and placing our lives under his lordship, confessing him as Lord. We have one faith. And if you are here today and you never put your own faith in Christ today, I would urge you to do so. Faith in God's grace is all you need to come to him. So come to him. Do it today. It's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is the public proclamation of our faith in Jesus. Brian Chapel explains that these are the terms that characterize the testimony of all who are truly Christ's. We testify that Jesus is Lord. We testify that faith in his work on our behalf is our only means of salvation. And by our baptism, we testify that we are cleansed of sin and united to him by his grace alone. May need to ask some of you today, if you have faith in Christ, have you been baptized? If not, what is preventing you from fully obeying him as Lord? This is yet another great unifying feature for those of us in Christ. We have all gone through the same waters. 
as Romans 6 describes it, being buried with Christ in his death, raised to new life by the glory of God, so that we too might walk in newness of life. And finally, last but opposite of least, verse 6 says there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The climactic ground for our unity is God's all-encompassing sovereign power. Notice the repetition of the word all here. He is the ultimate source of all life. He's the origin and ruler of everything. It says, one God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He is both our creator as well as our loving, perfect father, the head of our new family. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says he is also our ultimate purpose for living. It says, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And in him we have one supreme unity above any other possible unity. Paul stresses this by saying that he is over all and through all and in all. In other words, he rules over all, he works through all, and he is present in all. We have one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all. So what does this all mean for living worthy of our calling today? Well, for one, it means that our unity in Christ is ultimately unbreakable. As John Stott says, the unity of the church is as indestructible as the unity of God himself. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. So even when things seem fragile or fractured today, we must remember this. Nothing will pull us apart forever. So why let things pull us apart today? Also, the unity that is possible in Christ can make the gospel extremely attractive. We're meant to reflect this to all. And people all around us are fed up with division. They hate hatred. They despise hostility. There are people all around us who are also lonely, isolated, and long for community. And the people of God can show a broken and lonely world a new kind of humanity, a new way of life. The world can see in us an unbreakable unity being lived out with humility and patience. And if they see this, if they see this, most will be magnetically drawn to it. We all long for it. And that's really because we all long for the one God we were created for. Do you get the stakes yet? 
Are you grasping the, the gravity of the moment? All this about unity is not just about overcoming relational strife or division. It's not just about agreeing or agreeing to disagree over vaccines or protests. Our unity today, in February 2022, is meant to reflect the very nature of the eternal God himself. And if we rise to that calling, it will reverberate throughout the cosmos and on into eternity. Remember, God's ultimate purpose is, as it said in chapter 1, was to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Like his grand master plan is to unite things. What things? All things. Unite them where? In Christ, under his rule. But how is he working on this now? He's working on this project through his people, through the church. Like we are the current visible expression of the unity that will one day be universal. So we get this privilege. We get this opportunity to display to the universe God's grand goal to unite all things in Christ. What a plan. What a God. What a calling. May we, by God's grace, strive to walk in a manner worthy of it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, open our eyes. Let us see things from your perspective today. You see our brokenness. You see our fragility. You see where we have hurt one another. Would you bring healing, restoration? Would you Unite us in unshakable bonds. But no matter what the world throws our way, no matter what the devil throws our way, that we would stand united in Christ and in Christ alone. We need your grace for this. We need your spirit for you to work inside of us. So we pray for that now. In Jesus' name, amen.